Hi, this is Ben Cerruti at Birds on the Black, and I'm coming back with Conversations with Cerruti, uh, episode number seven. Uh, joining us this week is the same person who joined us last time, Kyle <laughs> Reese, um, and he does not want to be found on Twitter. So nope. uh, we're just going to go ahead and start right on in. Uh, every year, so uh, I don't know if you got to see this, Kyle, but uh, I threw something else on there today onto the what we're talking about every year daniel shopta also known as c70 on twitter who kyle also says you should just go find him instead he hosts a question and answer with cardinals president of baseball operations john mozalak or he sets up i guess i should say um he sets this q a up for cardinals bloggers in the blogosphere or twitter sphere or whatever we want to call it and that's held uh mid-season at bush stadium in person uh well except for last year with covid um, and then all the bloggers that attend get to hang out at the game that day and eat and drink and have fun. But Shopta also has an off-season Q&A that he emails to Mosaic as well. One question asked this year is a question that I had planned to ask Brendan Schaefer back in my conversation with Saruti a few weeks back. Um, Brendan did not have an update from the Cardinals at that point, but now we do. So I just wanted to point out this Q&A that uh, I had asked Brendan about. Um, the question... I don't remember who asked this. I think it might have been Eugene Tierney of Nerdcast. Um, a few years back, Bill DeWitt III mentioned a pitching academy in Jupiter. Is there any update on it? Uh, John Mozalek's answer was a couple paragraphs long, and it said, well, it's not an academy, but we do have a pitching and hitting lab now available to us down in Jupiter. We will have a lot of different technologies installed in these tunnels that will allow us to study pitching from a different perspective than we've had in the past, and it will also allow us to do more with our hitters. Overall, it really increases our technology and puts it in a place where we can secure it, analyze it, and share it. We will obviously utilize it during spring training and for minor league camp, and with the restructure of our minor leagues, we'll have our low-A Palm Beach Cardinals and extended spring training Gulf Coast League Cardinals teams at the complex during the season. So we'll have players that will have exposure to this area that are still very much in the development mindset. It's a great advantage for us because we have a lot of players who like to work out in Jupiter during the offseason, and now we'll have more tools to take advantage of to help them in their development. Now, Kyle, you brought this Q&A to my attention today. Did you get a chance to read that response earlier? I didn't read a word of it. None of it. I, uh, I asked oh, okay. like 10 questions, and I didn't even read those. <laughs> All right. Well, I did see that two of your questions got answered, so you should go back and look at that at some point. Yeah. Um, so, so what I just read there with the pitching lab, not academy, uh, what are your thoughts on that? It sounds like it's up and running, which is more than we knew before, at least. Yeah, nothing but progress. I like it. I heard some, uh, or I guess rather I read a quote on Twitter today from that TJ Antone, uh, the right-handed pitcher for the Reds, 
And, you know, he's he's getting a lot of steam right now uh, as a potential breakout starting pitcher, con, uh, 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 starting pitcher in the National League because of the spin rate on a lot of his pitches and everything. And he was just talking about how when he was in college and even when he was back in high school, he was using weighted balls to throw. And back then, people would say, oh, you're going to have Tommy John surgery. You're, you're wasting your time. You're hurting your arm. And that was only, you know, 10 years ago at this point or whatever. And within the last 10 years, and I think TJ uh, has already had Tommy John. But his point is, everybody's going to have Tommy John anyways. Why not get your arm as strong as possible? And he was just talking about the culture that being in the Reds organization has has cultivated in the progress towards finding out uh, uh, how to best prep an arm for an entire season, whether that be uh, measuring uh, biomechanicals, all of that stuff. And we're seeing that the Reds are starting to get, uh, along with some of the coaching decisions they've made and some of the forward-thinking decisions that they've made, but they're starting to get results from players that might have been overlooked by the system prior. And if the Cardinals can leech onto that in any particular way, in any way at all, uh, whether that be in a, a minor way or a major way, it's a positive. So I'm all about it. It took a lot longer to get built than I think the Cardinals wanted and probably a lot longer than it needed to. Uh, but it, if it's being employed and it's being used and the Cardinals players are embracing it, specifically the younger players and next generation, nothing but positives will come out of it. Yeah, I agree. I feel like um, you saw, is it Kyle Body or Kyle Bodie uh, go to the Reds and – and I don't know if he kind of started that jump start there that you're talking about, or if he just kind of joined in and was a part of, of what was already in place. But, but yeah, you have seen in in Cincinnati the last couple of years that even in a small band box like that, their pitching is kind of outshining their hitting, which is interesting to me. Um, and you'd think with a team as rich in pitching as the Cardinals and a team that's produced so many good pitchers over the years if that could just improve that much more that that would be quite incredible at least in my mind so um yeah good on them for doing that yeah um the other thing to remember is you know just a couple years ago had they done this you know they would still kind of be at the forefront of it but just how long it took for the thing to get built and this isn't a knock on the cardinals you know between all that we've dealt with over the last year and also, you know, the weather-related issues that the Cardinals dealt with, that all of Florida dealt with the prior year, it took a lot longer to get built than they had hoped it would, other than they were planning for it to. But now you're just trying to get caught up to the industry standard. I mean, sure, you still have teams like Colorado who don't really care. And, you know, there, there's still teams out there that are behind. But now, like, something like a pitching lab at Jupiter is just keeping up with the Joneses. It, it's not for It's not as forward as it used to be. So it's almost necessary for this. I think the more interesting thing to me that you and I haven't hit on is John Mazalak intentionally put in his response uh, to a question about a pitching academy, that it is a pitching and hitting lab. And I think if we've watched the Cardinals the last few years, we know that the hitting lab portion of that might be a little bit more important than the pitching lab portion even. Um, So I think that could be a key to getting you know, to getting guys, uh, to getting guys up here that that maybe put that put that exit velocity to actual use. Um, maybe finding the right angles for their for their exit velocity, finding the right attack angle, get, re, getting results of the light, the right launch angles, uh, things like that. Um, I don't know exactly what they're attempting to do with the hitting lab because I'm not a part of the organization, but but I'd be very much interested in that with how 
poorly we've performed at the plate the last few years. Yeah, and to match that, you know, pitching is getting better than it ever has because of these instruments and tools that are in place to help pitchers. And then you read a comment like from Blake Snell early in, earlier in the day who said something along the lines of he can tell that the seams are raised on this new baseball. Uh, he can tell that the seams are raised and he's getting a better feel for his breaking pitches and the control of the movement of those breaking pitches. And even, you know, even over these last couple of years, as home runs have kind of started to take over the game, you, you like in my mind, I can see a wagering going on between how how important it's going to be to get hitters prepped for this this new extreme pitching environment, uh, not just because of the new baseball, but this extreme pitching environment that we're kind of in, uh, and just getting them ready for whatever new techniques pitchers are going to use. So I'm I'm glad that he pointed that out. And my my guess is, uh, it, it, and this is a guess, uh, my guess is it probably has a lot to do with virtual reality. I know in the past the Cardinals have kind of worked to be on the forefront of that and incorporating that with some of their younger hitters. And uh, my guess is it's probably engineered a lot towards that or at least partially towards that. So that, I think that's all a positive. But, you know, I, I just think a lot with hitters and pitching. Hitters are already at a disadvantage to pitchers. And, and we see that with, you know, every hitter striving to get three hits out of every 10, get on base four times out of every 10 at bats. Uh, and you know, it, it's when you're hitting, you're already failing most of the time. So it's it just, it, it's very important that they focus on that aspect. And I'm glad that they are. All right. So I was going to start this podcast with questions about, dirty 35 and how that's going to look but we're on the topic of hitting so i'm going to push that back a moment um you've told me in the past last year when we did our draft episode for 2020 mm -hmm. draft um you've told me in the past the first thing you do at times when you quote unquote watch hitters is to actually close your eyes and listen to the sound off the bat yeah as a scout or as an amateur you know not scouting amateurs, but as an amateur scout online here. Um, what are you listening for exactly? Just that, that special and, noise. Like the other day, oh, Delvin Perez. And, you know, Delvin's a hot topic right now. I get, for the last two or three weeks, I get asked on Twitter via DMs, you know, once a day at the very least from somebody uh, about Delvin and, you know, is he legit? What was it like? What did he do? Blah, blah, blah. But anyways, it wasn't the triple that he hit because that game wasn't even televised and I didn't really get to listen to the audio of it. I only got to see the – I saw on the box score that he had the triple. But it was the the line out to third base that – not a line out, it was a ground out that he was ahead of. It would have been over the weekend, maybe Sunday, whatever day it was. The days blur together. And it just made that sweet noise. And it was a ball that he was out in front of, and I don't think he even barreled. I don't know what the exit velocity was on it. It was probably right between, you know, 93 and 87, just watching the ball and, and how it came off of his bat. But if you listen to it, there was that crack. And that crack only happens, and I'm sure he had to square up in some degree, but that crack only happens when players are making contact with the bat, at making contact with the ball using the bat at, like, the right, like, speed or pace. It's that noise that you can everyone hears and everyone knows that takes your breath away if you're a baseball fan at the stadium. Uh, if if you're eating your nachos, you hear that noise and you look up. It's it's that. And 
to, to kind of elaborate a little bit more, you know, I, I do such a poor job of explaining myself almost always. And I guess what I mean more than anything is, you know, I always key in on, on hitters and try to look at their mechanics, try to try to see what they're doing. But a lot of times when I have three or four games on, the game that I'm not watching, uh, I, I'll have the audio on for. And, you know, you might end up missing the at-bat at first, but if you hear that noise in the background while you're watching another game, it catches your attention. It catches your attention so much that you want to go back and see what just happened. It's that noise, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And I just wanted to make sure that the listeners kind of knew what I was talking about as I asked this next question then. So does that sound, as as somebody who's scouted for drafts, who's scouted the Cardinal system, who's scouted all different levels, um, you've watched many different levels of baseball, uh, you've played a couple levels, you've coached smaller kiddos in baseball. Um, does that sound take a different form when you're scouting high schoolers for a draft or college players for a draft versus minor leaguers at different levels of the system. So I guess, I mean, does, does age and level factor into what sound you're listening for? Mm, You know, that's a good question. and something I hadn't thought of. I will say just my preliminary thoughts are, you know, obviously the younger they are and the less, like the less competitive the competition is, but like the less I invest into it, 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 I guess my way of thinking is more people are going to be capable of doing spectacular things against less spectacular talent. So for me, when, when I'm watching or listening to a minor league game, I'm definitely taking that more into account then than I am if I'm watching a high school showcase. Now that's not to diminish the talent of a high school showcase. Most of those kids that are at the showcase are going to be top round draft picks. They're going to end up being the guys that, if they go to college or top round picks in college, not always, but sometimes are out of college and end up being the minor leaguers that you, you, you focus on uh, eventually if they stay healthy, etc. But for me, it's all about the competitive level that the guys are at. You know, a, a lot of times with the Cardinal system in prior years, your first, your first ability to watch live baseball at the minor league level was state college. And those are the advanced kids. A lot of times it's the high, the college kids who got drafted, uh, it, you know, maybe a little bit more advanced hitters, advanced feel for their, their breaking pitches from uh, collegiate level pitchers. And it's like the first time that you, you really get to like listen or watch them. And that's usually a good testing ground. You know, sometimes now the, the Cardinals were more aggressive getting kids to Peoria when Peoria was a low A affiliate you know, listening to Luke and Baker there, listening to Nolan Gorman there, watching Nolan Gorman there. Uh, so, to, you know, to your question, and the, I guess the other thing to keep in mind is that the audio and a lot of this stuff isn't very good. So you, it, it sticks out a little bit more almost across the board when you do hear it, when it is awe-inspiring, when, when it does grab your attention. But if you're talking about from like a volume standpoint, if you're trying to assess volume, for me personally, when when I get to like watching the minor leagues and I hear that and I see that, that's when I really start to like get excited about it. Gotcha. But at the same um, time, like you so, know, at the same time, if, oh, if if you're at the draft and you're trying to assess, you know, what you see out of Zach Veen as compared to Garrett Mitchell, uh, you know, Zach Veen being the high schooler who rose through the ranks in 2019 or 2020. And Garrett Mitchell, who was always on the scene for UCLA uh, as an outfielder, like 
the reason that I fell in love with Zach Veen, Zach Veen was initially at the beginning of 2020, supposed to go at the end of the first round, maybe beginning of the second round. And when I first saw him or became like hyper aware of him, uh, I wasn't even watching Twitter. I just clicked on a video and all of a sudden I heard that noise and I was like, who the hell was that? So I had to find out more about Zach Veen and like that excitement gets you because you think, well, this is a high schooler who has a body like a a man, although he's still kind of slender, but he has the frame of a man that can become like a man's body. And then, you know, contrast that with Garrett Mitchell, who isn't able to make the level of contact because he's not going up against that lower level of talent but who might poke a ball to left field as a left-handed hitter and still make that noise. Uh, again, usually as a player becomes more developed, they're, they're making that noise maybe a little bit more frequently uh, for less hard contact, if that makes sense. And it's just it's a matter of just assessing the situation while it's happening as well. Uh, it, it never stops being impressive whenever you hear it. So mentioning Zach Veen, who went to Colorado in the top 10, um, and Garrett Mitchell, who I had not had time to figure out where he went yet. Uh, was it the Brewers? Is that right? That's correct, yeah. I think he went to the Brewers. Um, so talking about other teams, who in the Cardinals system does that that hit-slash-power combination there, that, that sound come from? Like, who sticks out to you in the Cardinals system that that sound really comes off their bat quite often? Yeah, it's, it, when Nolan Gorman makes contact, it happens with him. It happened with him on the showcase circuit out of high school. You know, I, I remember talking to some of the people that I know in Johnson City, and, and they were like, this kid makes that noise. And when he made it to Peoria uh, initially that first year, he was making that noise. You know, it just, he has that. that That's him. I know one of the things that uh, that really stick with, like the, one of the impressions that Trajan Fletcher makes on a lot of people is that noise, that athleticism. Uh, Jordan Walker is one of those kids who, when you're watching, again, sometimes you have to keep it in perspective. If you're just watching showcase highlights where they're taking batting practice or a home run right. derby, you know, uh, you have to keep that in mind because more than likely a lot of kids are going to make it in that particular setting. But I, I know that uh, 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 Mr. Walker was one of those players that, that makes that noise. Uh, but when we talk about like the players in the Cardinals organization that maybe – Aren't, weren't recently drafted, you know, just for the fun of it, we'll eliminate maybe the 2019 kids and the 2020 kids. Um, you know, the couple names that come to my mind, and maybe this is one of the reasons why I'm higher on Brendan Donovan than most. Donovan kind of makes that when he makes contact. It happens, I would say, a little bit above average as compared to others. One of the reasons I really liked Andy Young, other than the, the, the adjustments that Andy Young had made, was Andy Young had an ability to barrel up a baseball uh, that that kind of got lost in the shuffle. So Andy Young was one of those guys. Um, and honestly, other than that, uh, I'm embarrassed to admit, without going back and like reading the Dirty 35, like there aren't a lot of names that immediately come to me, uh, aside from the guys that we've already seen at the major league level. You know, uh, if we're talking about guys in camp, you know, I'll, I'll highlight the the outfielders. Counter Capel can make hard, loud contact. It just doesn't happen enough. Same thing with Justin Turner. Justin Turner is more of a slap hitter than anything. Scott Hurst doesn't make, you know, again, he has the, they all have the ability to do it. They wouldn't be at the level that they're at if they didn't have the ability to do it. The frequency is what becomes um, uh, the, the important thing. They don't do it frequently enough. 
one of my favorite, Evan Mendoza. He did it a lot at the lower minor levels, minor league levels, and he just hasn't been able to continue that into Springfield as he hits a little bit more defensively. Um, but yeah, again, Andrew Kisner did it a lot. That was one of the reasons why I really liked Andrew Kisner and thought Andrew Kisner would be able to stick. Even in Springfield and Memphis, it just seemed like he was always making hard, loud contact. Um, but again, I, I feel like the uh, the double he hit down in the right field corner the other day, uh, that was one that I was just on my computer working on something and and the sound made me look up, Yeah, I feel like. Yeah. Um, so Kisner's still doing that at the major league level. Yeah. So that, other, other than that, like, you know, Luke and Baker does it a little bit. They all do it a little bit, but nobody does it where other than like Nolan Gorman and maybe some of the other kids that we haven't seen in affiliated ball uh, at an extensive level. Uh, Nolan Gorman's the one who does it more than anyone else when he does make contact. All right. So I want to take this in a different direction. This is a question that I'm almost embarrassed that I, that I didn't ask in this draft episode last year, just because it fits along so well with this. But is there any tool for pitchers that has that same system for you where you not necessarily like literally close your eyes and listen, but yeah. like a pop of the catcher's mitt on a fastball or would a more appropriate comparison be like watching the hitter instead of watching the pitcher or listening to the ball um, and seeing like, does, was it Matthew Lieberter last year who just embarrassed the guy in spring training and on the curveball that went right to the middle of the zone and the guy was like diving for his dugout. Um, yeah. That was JJ Blade. And then JJ Blade uh, took the next pitch, that same curveball, uh, opposite field for a base hit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So is there anything like that for a pitcher? Pitchers are a little bit different. You ha- Like for me, and of course, you know, the pop of the mid is, is a, a great comparison to make here. But for me, I have to key in on pitchers. We talk about command a lot. And sometimes I think command gets confused with throwing strikes uh, for, your, for your average fan. And I like because of Twitter, we all get really excited. And it's also really fun to watch. When, you know, a pitcher throws a slider that buckles uh, a, a hitter's knees, you know, that's a good sign, obviously. That means the pitcher or the hitter wasn't ready for it, whether it was them sitting on a fastball and getting a pitch that they weren't expecting or just being so fooled. Those are all positives. But the thing that I really key in on with pitchers, I want to see that the pitcher is hitting the glove. Well, we've talked about it in our group chat, the, the birds on the butt black group chat quite a bit but you know one of my major concerns with Michael Waka as Michael Waka started to devolve from a potential you know a top of the rotation starter to uh, a pitcher that was clearly dealing with shoulder issues and just couldn't command the ball anymore is sure Michael Waka would throw strikes and they'd actually be on you know the black of the strike zone but we saw him go from hitting the glove to moving the glove a lot, maybe even from side of the plate to side of the plate, uh, maybe even from top of the zone to the bottom of the zone. He was just getting away with it uh, better than most people yeah. do. So a lot of times when I'm scouting, what I want to see, and again, it's a little different when you're talking about the amateur, like the super amateur level, the, the, the prep kids or the college kids. Um, but like, especially when I'm looking at the minor leagues, I try to zone in on what the catcher is doing uh, uh, with the glove that like, to me, that's, that's probably the most important thing that, that I try to zone in on there. There isn't like an auditory, uh, uh, cue for me. It is fun as hell when you're watching Alex Reyes and you hear a pop that sounds like 
it makes you turn around to see if somebody's clapping something behind you. Um, yeah, but, yeah, that just makes that explosion. But yeah, exactly, exactly. But the, no, not for me. There isn't anything auditory like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, the other one I could think of is like when you're listening with the broadcast, the volume on. Just you hear that like announcer gasp when the guy throws something. That that's that's kind of fun too. I mean, that happens on the hitting side as well, though. So you touched on something that I really wanted to get into. So. Uh, while we were on the topic of tools, sort of, I wanted to talk about some of the best tools you've seen come up through the Cardinal system in the last few years. And this could be, you know, as a minor leaguer, who had the best of these tools? And I've got a whole list of them. And since you said pitchability, basically the command, the, you know, the, the ability to hit that catcher's mitt, the pitchability, I'm going to start at, that was actually at the bottom of my list, but since we're talking about it anyway... <laughs> Uh, I believe a couple of uh, a couple of weeks ago when we talked, you you kind of talked about how Angel Rondon has that um, that pitch ability that just uh, watching him toy with hitters is fun. Who else in the Cardinal system? Just one or two more names that have just really stuck out as as somebody who's got that tool of pitch ability. Real fast with Angel Rondon, I went back when I got home from work and I watched his appearance today, and I don't know what the hell kind of pace he was pitching with, but I've never seen him pitch at that terrible, terrible pace. He was working slow. I don't. He kept missing high and out, which was really weird. I don't know if that was a plan to try to get him to hit the high and outside spot on lefties, you know, high and in on righties, specifically high and out on lefties. I don't. Maybe they were trying too hard to work his curveball off of that high and out fastball. But I, he was working slow, and his arm looks slow, and his mechanics look slow, and I'm actually worried about him a little bit. I, I, I want to see him pitch again, but I've never seen him work at that slow pace before, ever. That One of the things I love about him is he works at a fast pace, and I'm really worried about him after what I saw today. Now, again, one spring training appearance is only so much, right? It, don't, it only means so much. Um, Did he yeah, get he, brought in with people? Did what he get brought in with sorry. people on base? I, did he get brought in with people on base or anything? Did I, I didn't get to see that portion of the game. I believe that he started the inning, and he he basically threw three straight balls on high and out fastballs, and then eventually put that runner oh. on base. And then I think he walked the next guy. I don't really remember now. I, I was just okay. I remember focusing in on his mechanics uh, and his pace, which were both unlike him. His mechanics just looked sloppy. Like, he looked tired. Uh, and I, th- it looked like his velocity was down a little bit, too. I don't know. Just something worth keeping an eye on. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, I, over the last couple of years, thinking about the guys who kind of do that, you know, one of the guys I know that you and I have talked about, uh, uh, talking about, is Andre Payante from UC Irvine, uh, the fourth-round pick for the Cardinals in 2019. He's a kid who just kind of moves in and out and kind of does what he wants with the baseball. Although, you know, he doesn't have the velo or the supreme spin or anything like that. He, he's kind, of, he's kind of like that. You know, I. Uh, it, it's hard when you're talking about anything outside of like the top tier talent in the organization because, a lot of times, those are the guys who, who end up making all the noise. You know, the broadcast has been shoving the Tommy Parsons Baseball America thing down everyone's throat about how Tommy Parsons has the best command control. They, you know, they kind of said the same thing about Alex Fagalde. He's kind of the same way. Um, although he does that same kind of thing that uh, Michael Waka used to do 
where he just doesn't hit his spot but throws strikes. And I think that's part of the reason, other than arm fatigue, that's part of the reason why we saw him get beat up at Springfield when he first made his debut at Springfield in 2019 uh, before he was shut down. One of the things that really impressed me about Evan Kraczynski, uh, who I actually think pronounced his name Krasinski, but uh, Evan Kraczynski, when he first made his organizational debut, uh, and even when he when he debuted at Springfield that same year, was that he had that. But then what we saw last year, or the last time he pitched in the minor leagues, which would have been 2019, we just saw a lot of hitters just keying in on his fastball. It, I mean, you talk about a, a pitcher who gets a lot of bad swings and a lot of uh, bad, like, knee-breaking you know, he'll, he'll get people to, like, buckle at the knees. Evan Krasinski, Krasinski is one of those guys. But the problem is, I just don't think his fastball is good enough, and hitters key in on it and won't settle for anything less than that, and then they stroke it when it gets thrown to him. So, uh, you know, talking about a command pitchability standpoint, you know, Alex Fagalde doesn't have great stuff, but he does the most with it that he can. Um, you know, what I hear about Michael Yasenka it's kind of something similar to that, but that's something I want to see for myself a little bit better. And, you know, to, to give Baseball America a ton of credit and uh, the broadcast a ton of credit, Tommy Parsons definitely has that quote-unquote pitchability that allows his his average-ish fastball uh, to play up because of his potentially above-average changeup and curve. Okay. All right. Uh, back to Evan Krasinski for a sec, or Krasinski, or however you want, however ah. he says it. Um, is does he throw a four seam or, or a two seam sinker? Okay, I'm pretty sure it's a four seam. I, I but I know that he's okay. toyed with a two seam, and I just don't think he could get the movement on it. So I think he tried. Yeah, okay, I was wondering. Yeah. yeah, I was wondering if that was something he needed to try was to just try something to get a little more something on it. I don't know. Yeah, you know, speaking of speaking of Krachinski and speaking of lefties and speaking of changing your arsenal, and I'm sure at this point nobody's listening anyways, but we we the last time you and I talked, we talked about Marco Gonzalez. And one of the things yeah. that gets lost about the success that Marco Gonzalez has is that he reinvented himself as a pitcher. When he went to Seattle, he cleaned up his mechanics, uh, and he also either switched from a two-seam to a four-seam or a four-seam to a two-seam. And that was the I think big he went to the two seam. I'm pretty sure. And that would make a lot of sense, right? I'll look that up right now. Keep going. Yeah, but anyways, you know, and he also changed how he was using his off speed stuff. You know, he had an advanced changeup. Remember, Marco Gonzalez was in that line of starting pitchers with an advanced changeup that the Cardinals drafted in you know the first round with Luke Weaver and Michael Waka and Marco Gonzalez. Uh, so. He, he worked on incorporating the curve, getting a better feel for his curveball, changed his fastball, cleaned up his mechanics, and started employing the changeup as both a setup and a, a put him down pitch. He, he had to completely change the pitcher he was to be the pitcher that he is now. And that's not to say it wouldn't have happened with the Cardinals, but there's reason to believe that a lot of these guys might not be able to hit their peak until they get into a different organization with coaches that specialize in stuff and players that can show them things. Uh, so again, this that's not to say the Marco Gonzalez for Tyler O'Neill trade was a good trade or a bad trade or any of that. It's just to say that baseball's so fickle. It's so difficult and it's so tough. Success is on the edge of a knife at every moment in baseball. That's why we love it, because it's a game of failure 
built on hope for success, that something as simple as changing a fastball uh, could be from a two seam to a four seam could be the catalyst or a four seam to a two seam could be the catalyst for going from a fringe major leaguer to uh, a top of the rotation starter for a second tier baseball team. Uh, And at the same time, you know, it's a fastball. So you think, Oh, it's a fastball. Like how hard is it to command a two seam as compared to a four seam? Were you reworking your mechanics? Really hard. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. At the major league level, it is pretty damn hard. So being able to rework your mechanics and all of your pitches and find that release point, find that release angle. uh, It's, it's just the amount of work that went into becoming a X seam to an X seam pitcher is probably nauseating for the average human being. So, you know, kudos to him for doing it. All right. So I looked it up. Um, he went to, uh, he added a cutter to his repertoire is what it was actually. There you go. Um, so he had, it looked like just by the percentages, he's always had the sinker, but it looked like he toyed with the four seam for a while. And then he went to a cutter as a secondary fastball. And that percentage has just continued to rise and rise and rise over the last few years. There you go. There you go. Um, okay. So we've talked about pitchability and command. What about like some individual pitches, like four seam fastballs in my mind, obviously you've got a Trevor Rosenthal coming up. That's a four seam fastball that kind of makes you turn heads. Um, Alex Reyes. Um, who are some of those lesser known guys that, the four seam fastball just kind of makes your makes your jaw drop a bit. Well, you know, not lesser known, but Oviedo. You know, we we've seen Johan Oviedo's fastball be about as explosive as possible. And you know, there's always that thing with him: is is it a cutter? Is it a four seam? He, I think he just throws it so hard and with so much like his four seam ends up having cutter action. So again, then you get into pitch classification, which is getting more and more of a gray area. But like that's always one. When you watch him, you think, "Holy cow!" Like that guy's fastball is heavy and it comes at you. You know, when I think about some of the two seam fastballs, it always seems to be from guys who end up not being super impressive. Like Connor Jones, his two seam fastball was, he has one of the best two seam fastballs in the organization. It just only goes so far, you know, he doesn't really command it. He just, but the movement on it is pretty sick, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. The thing about four seam fastballs is they're. It seems to me like they're becoming less and less common, as, you know, because of the movement profile and because people are starting to realize how hard it is, or how important it is, not how difficult it is, to actually spin the ball. And it's not easy to get the amount of RPMs that you need on a four seam for it to be as effective in today's Major League Baseball. So, uh, you know, there. To be honest, there aren't a, a ton that really stick out other than like Oviedo and. There are some times when, and not from a velocity standpoint, but from like a, su- a surprise standpoint, where I guess Angel Rondon's stuff is so good that, and there's another thing with him, because he he's toyed with a fastball, a four-seam and a two-seam. Uh, but when he's throwing the four-seam and he's throwing it with command and using the curveball off of it, that even though he only throws it you know between 90 and 94 uh, most of the time, it's so sneaky and powerful that that it it'll sneak up on uh, a hitter. And the only other one that comes to mind is, is Junior Fernandez. Again, uh, you know he's missed so much time over his minor league career with arm injuries. And when he came back, uh, started at Palm Beach in 2019, and eventually made his major league debut, that fastball was lively and controlled and in command. And that was 
that was a vicious pitch that year that he just hasn't been able to uh, uh, reclaim. All right. Okay. Um, so two things off that. One is I don't think we can get through a conversation about sinkers, two seamers without talking about Jordan Hicks. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's maybe the most ridiculous pitch in baseball that's over 90 miles an hour. I mean, that thing just breaks like nobody's business. And oh yeah, it's also a hundred two on a bad day. Um, but then, uh, I'm wondering with the pitching lab, I don't know, just some of the stuff that I've read this off season about not only uh, spin uh, RPMs on a ball and velocity, but, but the attack angle to the plate that a pitcher takes. Um, I'm wondering if four seamers are going to become more common in the Cardinal system. High, like high four seamers coming in at a different angle than those than than the than the like the knee four seamers and the and the two seamers and sinkers and cutters at the knee and the waist that if we're going to see more high four seam fastballs coming from different arm angles uh that you know that all pitchers kind of possess um just because just because of attacking the strike zone at different angles being such a uh such a detriment to the hitter uh, I'm wondering if we're going to see that more often now that the pitching lab is in full force. I definitely think we're going to see it out of the smaller pitchers. That's the one thing that I, I hear a lot, yes. especially when you're talking about uh, at the prep level and talking about preparing for the draft, the prep and collegiate level. There is definitely a push to get the smaller, you know, 5'11 to 6'1, 6'2 pitchers throwing a four seam because of most of the natural arm angles and release points of the smaller pitchers. Uh, and also, to your, you know, to your point, getting them throwing curveballs as opposed to sliders. Cutter, cutter, forcing curve would be the optimal for like the smaller uh, pitcher making his way into uh, organized professional baseball. So yeah, I, I think you're onto it. And and that could go right along with, uh, especially if you can get a guy with a high spin four seam fastball from a shorter slot just just it, it, it looking like it rises more i wonder if that's what billy wagner had going for him you know oh, that, that's great that four seam fastball from a shorter guy who didn't throw over the top by any means um I, i'm wondering if that's that's why his fastball had so much pop i mean i realize it was 98 or 99 anyway but it seemed like one of those that it looks 98 or 99 until it's flying by the guy who swung early. And then it looks like it's Jordan Hicks, you know? Um, all right. Uh, that's just where my brain goes sometimes. All right. No, what I'm about, what about break? <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> good. So what about, what about changeups off speed pitches besides Michael Waka besides, um, Oh my gosh, we've had so many good changeup guys. Over well, let's you know when when you were looking um, at Marco Gonzalez's stats, the the three in a row. You know, you think about Luke Weaver and you think about uh, Marco Gonzalez and Michael Waka. Those are those are the three that come to my mind immediately. I I remember watching. Speaking of Tommy Parsons, I remember watching the first start of Tommy Parsons that I could watch at Palm Beach. You know, uh, the Florida State League only has like one feed that the Cardinals ever play on, and it's Bradenton. And I remember getting to watch his start there, and I remember him. Absolutely making Travis Swaggerty, who was a top of the you know top prospect for the Pirates at the time, look foolish on both curveballs and changeups, and that's when I 
when I first started keying in on Tommy Parsons' changeup and realizing that, no, this is an actual above-average pitch, that he commands pretty well. And not only, I mean, he better than pretty well, he commands well, well above average. And even when he doesn't have a feel for it, he can still do some impressive things with it. Uh, though, like, he's the one outlier, aside from the top of the draft board types, that that really sticks out uh, of about, like, wow, that changeup is something else. But, you know, and, and another thing is when, um, uh, so... <laughs> There's a couple guys who aren't allowed to throw their changeup or who don't throw their changeup enough that you would watch at the minor league level and you'd say, all right, that pitch is going to play. And the two that come to my mind are Alex Reyes and Jordan Hicks. I think it's a damn tragedy that Jordan Hicks doesn't ever really get to throw his changeup. Uh, I think whoever's making that decision is an idiot. Um, but again, I'm not affiliated with any major league club. I don't, I'm not a coach. They're smarter than I am. Uh, Alex Reyes was the same way. When Alex Reyes would throw his changeup, it was nasty. You know, Ben, you tweeted earlier in the day that you wonder if Alex Reyes' stuff is so sick that it, it freezes umpires. And I can tell you absolutely, and it's something that I talked about before he even made his Major League debut. That happened at the oh, minor league level. You, I, I remember you saying that all the time about him on pad or anywhere people would listen. Yeah, it, it, it would happen like maybe once an inning at least <laughs> at the minor league level. He, I used to, and keep in mind with him, he had command issues at the minor league level that everybody kind of wondered if he was going to sort out. So I focused in a little bit more with him and his command because I wanted to see how much of it was actually command and how much of it was like, how much of a free thrower he was. Because I just wanted to see how much of a free thrower he was. And it was so frustrating to watch him pitch. And you would see umpires like stand up and shake their heads because they were so frustrated. <laughs> by how good it was. Um, so, <laughs> like, those two guys. And then another guy whose curve or his, whose changeup was really good that never got the play it deserved was Ryan Helsley. You know, he's another guy who doesn't get to throw his changeup. And when he throws it, it granted, you know, this is one of those uh, 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 chicken and the egg things. When he throws it at the major league level, it, is it over the plate frequently because he doesn't throw it? Or because, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I'm doing a terrible job of explaining it. But yeah, at yeah. the minor league level, when he threw it, he'd leave a couple over the plate, of course. But he buried that thing a lot. And hitters look stupid a lot. So I always get frustrated when guys like Hicks and Reyes and, and Helsley don't get a chance to throw these pitches at the major league level. Yeah. Um, for those of you that haven't seen the tweet that I tweeted earlier, basically it was a 4 four tweet thread but the recap of it was that at the major league level in his career reyes has gotten four percent less strike calls than other pitchers get when they were outside of the strike zone and should have been balls and on pitches in the strike zone reyes gets 15 percent more of them called balls compared to other pitchers um and i, I just ended with this seems to have significant effects as Reyes's walk rate in his career is 14.7%, which is well above normal. Um, so yeah. Uh, so I'm going to transition with Reyes. Um, I don't know if you got to see him pitch today, but he started out the first batter with, I don't remember the number. I want to say it was like an 83 mile per hour slider that just caught the outside corner and was ridiculous. And then he followed it up 
with a 78 mile per hour curveball in the exact same spot. And I mean, the hitter was just, he looked like he was crying to himself in the batter's box. Ah. He really did. Um, Besides Alex Reyes's ridiculous stuff, let's talk curveballs, sliders, other breaking balls of whatever sort you want to call them or whatever they want to call them. Because I know there's some players who call something a slider and you think it's a curve and vice versa. Um, In the last couple of years, who are some guys that are, let's go with still in the minors. Who are some guys that are still in the minors that would still be dirty 35 eligible that people should look for this spring, the rest of the spring and look for coming up through the system. You know, the, the two obvious ones are Libertor and, and Zach Thompson. When Zach Thompson was drafted, everybody was kind of salivating over that slider. And it was clear to me that the curve was the better pitch. And it was it was rewarding to see, you know, six months later, everybody talking about the slider needing work and, and the curve being the more advanced pitch. And what we saw at spring training in 2020 was that Zach Thompson had started, sort of refined his curveball and sort of refined find his slider and all three of those pitches including his fastball were averaged to above uh, while commanding them all so uh, you know just looking at his entire profile the curveball is better than the slider still the slider is a pretty good pitch now but that like his ability to use it and how he uses it is exciting we've already talked about libertor everybody who talks about him is going to talk about that curveball uh it's good. It's yeah, good. I believe the pitching. I believe the pitching ninja, uh, Rob Friedman on Twitter, uh, referred to Libertor's curveball as the soul stealer. Huh. Uh, okay, continue. <laughs> the, the, that Libertor curveball from last year is, it's the ultimate two pitch study in baseball development, right? So, in uh, that that two the one that you talked about earlier. It was, I think that I'm pretty sure they were back to back pitches, right? So he throws, he throws, Libertor throws the curveball that everyone gift to Marlins draft pick JJ Blade. Now, I could be wrong, but I believe JJ Blade was the sixth pick in that draft. Uh, it it might have been fourth pick in the 2019 draft. So that would have been the 2020 spring training. His first spring training as a member of the Marlins. He's out of Vanderbilt. Now, we everyone who knows anything about college baseball knows that Vanderbilt is probably the premier academy uh, in in all of the land. It's the Duke uh, Duke basketball of baseball. It's the Alabama uh, Alabama football of baseball. So, Blade, fourth overall pick, sixth overall pick, whatever he was, outfielder, super advanced left-handed hitter, uh, just a tremendous feel. For hitting, the first thing he sees from the prep lefty, uh, the then 19-year-old Matthew Libertor, is a curveball uh, that is headed for his head and ends right in the middle of the strike zone, and he has nothing to do but basically poop his pants. That's what we would all do. That's how God intended for those curveballs to to lefties to react to those curveballs. The next pitch he hits, he actually squares up. He he hesitates. He holds his hands, and then he lets the bat do the work. Now, the lesson to take from this is this is the advantage of going to college. Uh, More than likely, even in his short minor league stint, Matthew Libertor had never gone up. He just, you'll never, he'll never have the ability. 
Like, up until that point, up until his time in the minor leagues, he never would have had the ability to face anybody who would be able to do that from the left-handed side. So now you have J.J. Bleday. He gets in there, this advanced college hitter, and you know what? He's not going to be fooled a second time by that pitch. So a lot of the success that we saw Matthew Libertor having up until that point with a substandard fastball um, was was because he was able to do this kind of stuff with this curve. It's why guys like Matthew Libertor, uh, that's not fair because Libertor is going to be a good pitcher, but it's why some guys have the ability to be really effective at the minor, at the lower level of the minors and not be effective at the upper level of the minors. That was probably one of the first times that Matthew Libertor couldn't get away with throwing two nasty, nasty curveballs in a row to a lefty. And how he adjusts to that is the pitchability factor that will come into how he develops. You know, J.J. Bleday is an advanced hitter, something he had probably never really seen uh, in, in a tough environment. And just those two levels of development in teaching and preparation – going up against each other and seeing the hitter win, it, it gives you an idea of what Matthew Libertor had to work on in those moments. He's not going to be able to get away with just throwing that curveball to lefties as, as he progresses up the line. That fastball had to get better. The slider had to get better. The changeup had to get more consistent. Um, and again, I know that that's a hell of a rant to go on as we talk about the best curveballs in the organizations or the best breaking pitches <laughs> in the organization. But uh, I'm always fascinated by that little at bat combo and just some random spring training game because of just the different dynamic that a collegiate top five pick or top six pick out of one of the best colleges in baseball uh, against one of the best prep lefties uh, from the prior year draft. It just, it's an interesting thing that I really love. Um, You know, not talking about curveballs. But whenever I think about a breaking ball in the organization, I think about Griffin Roberts' slider. I don't know about the rest of his stuff, but that slider is the best pitch in the organization, the best breaking pitch in the organization. It's To me, it's it's better than Libertor's curve. It's better than Thompson's curve. It is it is the best pitch in the organization. And it, I, I personally don't think it's close. Um, but, uh, I, you know, it's just the problem is he just doesn't do enough with any of his other stuff. And the Cardinals don't appear to be one of those organizations that are willing to just let him throw a slider a hundred times. Uh, you know, that they want him to have fastball command uh, and to be able to use it. And sometimes it just doesn't work for him. All right. Is my mic working now? There we go. I think. All right. Um, I don't know if I lost Kyle for a moment there, but um I was trying to ask him, along with the Griffin Roberts train that he was on, was yeah. if Griffin Roberts could be like a Ryan Presley. Kyle, you back? I am. I don't know what happened there. I don't either. I don't know. I think it might have been my mic went out, and then you were looking for me. But um, basically, I was trying to ask, do you think Griffin Roberts could be a Ryan Presley type? That he just throws tons and tons of... Uh, of of sliders and and then the fastball is passable enough to get it by i think he still has work to do on the fastball but that slider is good enough to pitch at the major league level okay cool um all right so i was going to transition if if you were ready to to hitters now uh just big tools in the system for hitting um you've talked about uh, i know we talked about that sound that comes off of like a gorman's bat uh, would you consider that more on the power side or the hit side or a combination? 
I I would say that as they advance through the ranks, it ends up being just the hitting side, uh, like all-encompassing hitting. But at the lower levels, it's definitely more incorporated with power, if that makes sense. Okay. So who is a guy I, I know like Oscar Tavares a few years ago, uh, Mag Sierra a few years ago, had ridiculous batting averages at the minor league level. But who would you say are guys with that that typical hit tool, that contact, just bat to barrel, barrel the bat to the ball, can just make contact all the time with anything coming up through the system? It changed a little bit when he got to Springfield. But one of the guys that was always super interesting was Justin Turner. I am, I am forever interested in what's going to end up becoming of Justin Turner. He is fearless in the outfield. He, he has a potential to be a truly plus defensive outfielder. He's always shown the ability, even in college, to make supreme contact. And it's just a matter of, like, I guess him figuring it all out. You know, his his uh, his strikeout rate went through the roof with double A. You know, when you watch his at-bats, he just didn't seem like – he didn't seem comfortable in the box. Um, I'm not sure if that was just him guessing or, you know, second-guessing or – uh, whatever it might have been, or just not having confidence at the moment. But, you know, the, it's it's funny, like the two guys who come to my mind at the organizational level who have like, like the contact ability, uh, are the two or three guys actually, now that I think about it, you know, we, we already mentioned Brendan Donovan. Brendan Donovan makes a ton of contact. Um, Justin Turner makes a ton of contact. And then maybe what sets Luke and Baker aside is Luke and Baker makes a ton of contact. Uh, again, it, it's weird contact, but Luke and Baker has a relatively interesting, and we we talked about this last time, but it has a relatively interesting hitting approach that has a, a, an advanced amount of contact for somebody of his size that isn't necessarily engineered for power. Um, and th- those are just the first couple names that come to my mind instead of rambling as I try to remember other names. Does Justin Turner... Um... I know that was his first crack at double A back in 2019 when he was wrote that strikeout rate rose higher than you would like it on all that. Um, do you think he's a guy that maybe gets a second chance at double A this year? Or do you think he starts at triple A and maybe seeing those advanced pitchers might struggle again? I think he goes back to double A. There is one misconception about this particular camp that I, I, I do kind of want to maybe address a little bit and, you know, there, I understand why people would think. So before uh, there was a camp, there was supposed to be the AAA season starting on April 6th. And there there appears to be this misconception that all of the guys who were in spring training with the Cardinals were going to end up going to AAA. Uh, and that, of course, wasn't the case. You know, they, were, they still would have had to have field a AAA team on uh, April 6th when the season started. But a lot of those guys were going to stay in Jupiter uh, because, remember, other than the travel or the taxi squad, you can only have 26 guys uh, at AAA or whatever they ended up agreeing on because I'm sure that that would have been something they would have agreed on. So to make the assumption, and it doesn't mean that they would have, but to make the assumption that Nolan Gorman and Matthew Libertor were both going to go to AAA, I've been told, isn't necessarily true. Uh, there was always a very good chance that unless they had a standout camp, both of those guys were going to go and were going to stay in Jupiter and break with the Springfield club. Um, you know, just keep that in mind as we talk about like Avon Herrera being there 
And as we talk about Delvin Perez being there, like part of the reason why the Cardinals had so many older players in camp uh, was because those guys were going to backfill to AAA, while a lot of the younger guys were the advanced guys, you know, Yvonne Herrera, Nolan Gorman, Matthew Libertor, were going to start at, at AA. Again, Libertor had a chance to break AAA. Uh, Zach Thompson had a chance to break, break AAA. But um, there, there's no guarantee that that was going to happen. Um, but uh, Do you think, you know, oh, go on. Do you think that that's kind of a direct rebuke of last year's um, alternate training site that the Cardinals bring in this year guys who uh, they bring in the the behemoth of a pitcher, um, Quezada, from Philadelphia. They bring in Ali Sanchez. They bring in Mike Maroff. They bring in Jose Rondon, these these um, slightly more veteran but still youngish guys to backfill AAA because if we need that alternate training site, uh, last year the Cardinals didn't seem to have that kind of guy. Um, I, at their- I, I 100% believe that's the case with the catchers. I believe that Maroff and Rondon are there because – they don't have middle infield depth at the high levels of the minor leagues. Um, okay. And I think that they're always trying to acquire as much pitching as they can. Fair enough. Okay. Um, what about switching over to, I think the power guys, you, you cover pretty well, typically in your dirty 35. Um, uh, we've talked about how Luke and Baker's a big boy. Doesn't necessarily have that superior power, but it could grow. Um, talked a little bit about uh, Jan Torres last week or last time we talked about how he's just got mammoth power. Um, I know when you were on with Alan Medlock and Daniel Shoptaw on Meet Me with Musial um, that you guys talked about Terry Fuller a little bit um, who you call a linebacker in the outfield. Um, who are the others that, that just uh, Nolan Gorman, obviously. Who are the others that just stand out with that just raw power tool? Or, or maybe it's in-game power that doesn't show up as raw power necessarily. Yeah, you know, I'm very anxious to see um, how Trajan Fletcher's power has developed. He's one of those guys who has really, really embraced advanced technology uh, in an effort to become a better hitter. And I was, I'm really anxious to see what that looks like. Uh, Jordan Walker, I think that there's an argument to be made that he might possess the best raw power in the organization of players who haven't played for the organization yet. Um, and affiliated ball, if that makes sense, as I try to find loopholes to uh, uh, my <laughs> argument. How, how about uh, if you're trying to say under Nolan Gorman, maybe uh, below the double A level? Yeah, that works. <laughs> that works. Okay. Um, you know, the, the tough thing there is then there are guys. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll just say that guys who have yet to make uh, a debut for the Cardinals organization. Cause he still has yet to make a debut for the Cardinals organization. Okay. okay. And that, that power is raw. You know, Malcolm Nunez, he just hasn't tapped into it, but like that raw power that Malcolm Nunez possesses uh, when, when he's swinging free and easy, that's right up there. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think that it's, I think, while I love power um, and it's potentially easy to find, you know, I, I think that those, the names that everyone knows when it comes to power are the names that are, are going to carry, you know, uh, one name that came to my mind as we started talking about Trajan Fletcher and Terry Fuller and all these other guys is Patrick Romary. Um, you know, a 10th, I believe a 10th round. I don't even remember at this point, 
a 10th or 11th round pick in the 2019 draft, a prep kid out of IMG Academy. Uh, he has legitimate raw power. and He doesn't even have a swing that's necessarily engineered for power, uh, but he can produce it. And I was, I was really hopeful to see a 2020 season out of him, and I'm sad that we're not going to get to see it. Um, and hopefully the Cardinals get maybe a little aggressive with him in 2021. He might be one of those sneaky power threats uh, in the long run. But other than that, yeah, your typical names, Jan Torres, Malcolm Nunez, Terry Fuller, Nolan Gorman, Jordan Walker, um, all the names that you've heard are, are probably at the top tier of the power ranks in the Cardinals organization. All right, correct me if I'm wrong here. Romeri coming from IMG Academy. Is he a guy that when you talk to Dirty 35, that is kind of like Dylan Carlson in the fact that, uh, or Nolan Gorman in the fact that very high baseball IQ yeah. is that one thing that just really stood out to you, right? There, Yes, absolutely. To answer your question, the Cardinals under Randy Flores have gone out of their way to specifically draft guys with off-the-charts baseball IQ. And a lot of the times, the vast majority specifically of like the top 15 or 20 picks in the draft for the Cardinals, they end up also being like, academic All-Americans or decorated uh, academically. And I think that's a smart direction to go in, uh, maybe, you know, second-level thinking, uh, galaxy brain thinking. But, yeah, no, he, uh, he's definitely a high baseball IQ. He, he loves the sport. He's got a high-motor, high baseball IQ. All right. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. All right, uh, let's turn to speed. Uh, I've already mentioned, like, Mag Sierra. Yeah. We have seen – we have seen just an influx of speed at the major league level. Uh, Tommy Edmond, uh, Lane Thomas, Harrison Bader, Tyler O'Neill, all in that top probably, I, I don't know the math off the top of my head, but I'm guessing 8 to 10% of baseball in sprint speed. Um, doesn't necessarily mean they could do it on the base paths, but just that raw speed. Uh, but I want you to talk about both. I want you to talk about who are the guys that have just that raw speed in the organization uh, still that haven't made major league debu league debuts, and who are those guys that have it on the base paths? Um, you know, Paul Goldschmidt doesn't have great speed, doesn't make many mistakes on the bases. Um, we saw that. We see that with Yadier Molina. I mean, he he gets he's had Yadier Molina's speed has had double digit steals in a season before. Um, I mean, and I think that I might be faster than Yadier Molina, and a word that I describe myself as is slow. Um, and so he obviously just has IQ, baseball IQ off the charts. Who's got the base running and who's got the speed? Speed right away is Trajan Fletcher. I, I'd wager that Trajan Fletcher and Mason Wynn are probably the two best athletes in the organization, and they're also probably the two fastest Um they're, they're just, they're burners. I, I don't know how fast fast is, but I'm sure they run fast for being fast. Uh, like, th those are the first two guys that come to mind. The Cardinals, again, because of maybe this influx of, of drafting high baseball IQ guys, you know, like, Nolan Gorman is a really good base runner, like a surprisingly good base runner. One of the things that really struck me about Yvonne Herrera is, again, not slow, not a burner, but a really good minor league base runner. And again, you know, when the game speeds up, you know, appraising the, the base running abilities of a guy at the lower levels doesn't necessarily mean it's going to, like, continue. Like, I think about Aliris Montero. 
You know, Montero, again, maybe it was just his whole thing where he just got overly aggressive. I remember in Peoria being really impressed with his base running, taking an extra base, being smart about leadoffs, blah, blah, blah. And then at Springfield, him just kind of regressing into overly aggressive. Um, so, you know, as these guys kind of climb the ranks, they uh, they can get exposed or they can actually look better. Um, Luke and Baker is a really good base runner for being bottom of the barrel fast. Uh, again, maybe to your Yadier Molina comparison. He, he, uh, man, I would, I wonder if Luke and Baker is slower than Yadi. I know he's slower than Matt Carpenter. <laughs> he he okay. is, he's bottom of the barrel. All right. Now I did want to point out, I know I made that comparison to Yadi. I am 99% positive that I would probably get caught stealing a hundred times before I could ever steal a base. So I'm just going to put that out there as well. Uh, that, that that's how good Yachty's base running probably is, uh, in comparison to me. Um, a name that you did not bring up in the power or the speed that I was kind of surprised because of what we've seen this spring. And somebody you mentioned earlier with that sound off the bat, Delvin Perez. Okay, so I I was going to bring up... Now, Delvin doesn't have the power. That's not his right. thing. I don't think that'll ever be his game, even if he you know continues to put on weight and muscle. But he's definitely a burner, and he's the combo. He, at least again, in Peoria in 2019, which seems like 150 years ago, he became a really, really great and smart base runner who could also burn. And... You know, I, I, it's hard with Delvin because I've been getting asked a lot, is Delvin for real? Is this for real? And I think it just depends on what your level of for real is. I think it's for real to expect that we get some some major league type impact of Delvin that is reminiscent of Pete Cosma. I could definitely see that. You know, I could definitely see that. If you're looking at trying to be super optimistic – Again, a player who it took the, a, a high draft pick for the Cardinals that took a couple years to really understand his game, uh, who was a shortstop but eventually moved to the outfield where Delvin isn't going to need to do that. I, I think there's reason to be super optimistic that if everything falls perfectly for Delvin at this point, he becomes some infield version of Oscar Mercado. But he he's never going to be a perennial all-star. That's not going to be his game. He, we know that for a fact now. I mean, it, and I don't that's not to beat him up. It's like we have this unrealistic expectation that these guys have to be that he doesn't need to be that. He just needs to be a good player. Uh, but yes, he isn't, he's an absolute burner around the base paths. And to see the strides that he made as a base runner uh, between 2017 and 2019 to understand the game and to um, feel the game were huge. And I remember walking away at the end of the 2019 season impressed with uh the at-bats he was taking, the way he was running the base, and the way he was playing the field. And that was part of the reason why I had to continue to include him on the Dirty 35, even at the back, because it was just all about, will his focus stay, and will he add weight? Uh, and I remember saying, it's just a matter of weight. It doesn't even need to be muscle. It just needs to be weight. Whatever weight he can add that doesn't hurt his lateral motion uh, is the most important thing. And he added the best kind of weight. And it hasn't slowed him down. So, yeah, he's an absolute burner. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so, I think Delvin Perez, 
totally takes us into the fielding aspect of that as well. So we've had uh, we've had some great defenders coming up through the system lately, as the basically entire team at this point at the major league level has a chance of winning you a gold glove, um, uh, whether it's an outside shot or a legitimate shot. Um, who are some guys still at the minor league level besides Perez that really cover some ground? And I know I'm going to steal a couple from you. I know that you've said that Evan Mendoza yeah. plays a very good left side infield no matter where he's at. Um, probably plays a very good first base as well, but it's a waste of his talent. Yeah. Um, Delvin Perez plays a good shortstop, very good shortstop. Uh, we've seen Edmundo Sorsa at the major league level, but uh, he does very well at second, third, or short. In the outfield, you've talked about how Turner, and I believe it's Capel, um, both play a very good outfield as well. Um, anybody that I'm missing there that you just feel like uh, covers a ton of ground or has a great arm or just has super instincts like always hitting the cutoff man or always throwing to the right place or anything like that. Yeah, Brendan Donovan is one of those guys. I've actually, and I guess it doesn't matter now, but I'd like to see Brendan Donovan get a little bit more time at third. I'd like to see them move him around the diamond a little bit. I think he could be a really valuable utility player. Uh, you know, he's he was primarily second base for Peoria last year or 2019. Um, he's intriguing. Uh, he's faster than given credit for. Like, He's he might be one of those guys who are like Harrison Bader or Tyler O'Neill, Tommy Edmond to a lesser degree, where he doesn't seem so fast when you watch him, but then you're like when you really key in on him, you're like, oh wait, this guy's faster than I ever could have put together. Um, so I could see him being like one of those sneaky fast guys who have you know quick game speed that you don't quite understand. But yeah, all those names are the ones that that really cover it. But look. I've got this whole thing about outfield defense. I think we overrate outfield defense to a degree when you start talking about like how important elite defensive outfield is. And part of that reason is watching the minor leagues. I think people would be very surprised at how many well above average to plus defensive outfielders there are at the minor league level. I, 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 and I think part of it is because at the major league level, we sacrifice offense for defense, of course, somewhat frequently and, the Cardinals have had some questionable outfielders defensively uh, take up everyday roles since 2015. But I mean it, not just in the Cardinal system, uh, with obscure prospects from every organization. People are faster now than they've ever been. They've got stronger arms now than they've ever had. And they cover more ground than ever uh, while getting too big for the outfields that are corralling them. And I just, I don't think there's much of a difference between the ultimate and the next tier. So, like, Patrick Romeri, Trajan Fletcher, although Trajan Fletcher was, was super raw in 2019, like, all of the names that we've mentioned, uh, specifically in the outfield, have that supreme athleticism to be able to cover a ton of ground. And I, I think that, and I really, honestly, truthfully, cannot remember where I heard this today, but I think Mozeliak kind of made reference to that, maybe, about how... Uh, and I feel terrible because I'm going to butcher this, but I don't think he was specifically talking Bader, but I think he was saying that in the even at the major league level right now with the Cardinals, that the difference between your true bench guys at the moment, so I'm guessing he means like a Justin Williams and a Lane Thomas because it seems like they're, they're 100% going with O'Neal, Carlson, Bader, but that 
maybe your your lower tier outfielders that you currently have, their defense isn't that much different than the upper tier ones, which I can only assume to mean Bader, who's been fantastic in center, and then O'Neill, who won a gold glove. Yeah. Um, and so if he's talking, you know, Carlson's just a quarter step below them or a half step below them. Thomas, same thing. Williams, even uh, that that if any, I, I think he was basically getting at if any of them are just crushing the ball, then they're probably going to be playing. Okay. Um, and, and I don't know if that was his message behind his tone more so than that the defense is that close, but uh, kind of hit home with me with what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, like, Austin Dean is not a good outfielder. He just isn't like you see it. And when you see so many other outfielders in the organization who are better defensively than him, like who have a more intriguing bat, there's just not a spot for him. So let him play second, let him do whatever the hell. But don't deprive those other guys the chance for someone like Austin Dean or Lars Newtbar, who everyone loves his name, but he's a left <laughs> fielder who has a he has Maybe great a, name. Yeah, a perfect name. Uh, but he has a he has a solid arm, but he's he just doesn't have the athleticism to necessarily rival that with the bat that he has. So, like, I, I guess what I'm getting at is you can really see the difference in between, like, the delta between the average and the good is bigger now than it's ever been. It's like the wealth gap in the United States is really what it's like. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I'm going to keep this podcast more in the baseball realm because nobody wants to hear me go down that rabbit hole. Um, (laughs) Last one I want to talk about with tools. We talked about pitchability for pitchers. Um, What about strike zone knowledge for hitters? What about like, who's that next, you know, Matt Carpenter in his prime that knows the zone better than the umpire. (laughs) I think there's a chance that's Yvonne Herrera. Avon Herrera is a feisty hitter. He uh, he plays with a lot of pizzazz, and he gets pretty frustrated in the box sometimes. Uh, Justin Williams, and I'm sure we've started to see it a little bit in spring over the last couple years, Justin Williams, while he doesn't have the eye, he gets frustrated like Matt Carpenter does. Um, and then, like, I, I think, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, Again, just thinking about like the prospects at the top, you know, not necessarily thinking about the guys who might not ever make a major league debut or, you know, might not even make it past double A. Luke and Baker's one of those guys who has an acute knowledge and an acute eye of the strike zone. And what happens within an at bat is kind of dictated by whatever level of aggression he wants to put into an at bat. So, uh, yeah, again, it's, I guess the lesson to take from all of this is it seems like the guys who, have the big skills or the guys who are always on the dirty 35 or are always on the top 50 prospects or whatever. And, yeah. you know, it, sure. There are other guys again, like Alex Fagalde, who probably will never make it past double a, or maybe gets to triple a because of his age this coming year following a pandemic. Um, but like, other than that, even the people with weak tools are still at the top because their tools are superior. Okay, that makes sense. All right, we are an hour and 15 in. Uh, how much more time do you have tonight, sir? Probably until I fall asleep. I mean, <laughs> it just depends. How, how are you doing on beer? Oh, I am unfortunately out, but uh, I, I do have a few questions for you. I 
Why don't we save the Dirty 35 stuff for next time? I have spring break next week, so I might try to get a hold of you. But I had a few questions. I went to Twitter. um, I went to my DMs, so not everybody got to see me ask for this. But I went to my DMs and asked for if anybody has questions. Um, and some, I'm going to, I'm going to go with some of them that fit in with what we've been talking about. Um, so Matt Graves of Redbird Rants wants to know what is something that people praise or that people talk too much about that is either a bad thing or doesn't matter when it comes to like scouting and prospects. Oh man, that, that is a great question. Uh, you know, really without thinking about it, um, you know, for me personally, oh boy, you know, I don't know. That's a great question. I am stumped. So the other part about this is because I haven't thought about it in a long time. These questions aren't like at the top of my mind. That 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 is a great question from Matt. Okay. Uh, you know, so keep that one and keep one and keep that one in the back of your mind. I'll, I'll circle back to it. Um, so kind of be batting that around. Um, Stu Styles of Birds on the Black wants to know. When you're scouting a high schooler, what's the most important thing? Is it athleticism? Is it wanting a well-rounded athlete? Is it baseball IQ? Is it just any major tool standing out? What do you look for in a high school athlete? I think athleticism has to be prevalent, but it's it's the whole package for me. You know, that's why I never really liked Trajan Fletcher. To me, everything was built on his athleticism. It was, if all of this could happen, it's going to be on the back of his athleticism. And I think wait like and he's he is a smart kid he's a dedicated kid you know it's nothing like that but it seemed like everything was dependent on his athleticism and to me that if everything is dependent on one aspect of a person's you know build of a person's makeup then that's dangerous to me specifically with high schoolers i think that i you know, if I was working for a major league organization and I got to talk to these kids and I got to see them and I got to scout them, I would want to know what kind of player this kid is. I would want to know his dedication level, uh, not only to the game, but to school and to family. I think all of that is important when you're trying to really paint an entire picture on a high schooler. Um, because, you know, when they get into an organization, it's going to be their first taste of real freedom. And, you really need to have a, a feel for the type of person that that kid is. And to remember that that's still a kid. Uh, but like the ability to play the game is the most important thing. It, it's the most important thing. So to Matt's question uh, and to Stu's question here, uh, I think that maybe, and again, athleticism is important, but when you're talking about the elite again you're talking about the elite so when we're talking about guys without athleticism uh we're talking about yadier molina who's more athletic than 99 percent of the people who are listening and talking in this podcast um i think maybe we overvalue the importance of the supreme athlete uh that's not to say that a player doesn't need to be athletic but i think that's like i think maybe there's a little bit of overvaluing of that going on when really maybe the most important thing is the ability to understand how you learn and apply your understanding of how you learn to your craft. Uh, And to me, that would be the most underrated aspect of what amateurs like myself try to do um, because we don't really get to talk to the kids. So uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's my answer to both Stu and 
to a degree met. All right. So this next question, I was an idiot and did not write down who sent this one, but it adds on to that. And I think you may have already answered this. So um, let, let me know if this kind of goes along with what you just answered, but adding on to Stu's question, knowing that you can tell early on high school and college, if a player will dominate in other sports like the NBA, you know, you get like a LeBron in high school that you're just like, Holy crap. Um, how do you know that a player or do you ever know that a player who's a high schooler in baseball is a guy that can come up and dominate in the majors? No, you don't. I mean, you never know. I, I definitely think that again, as I, as I kind of bash athleticism, like there's no secret that the kid who was also the, uh, the team, the high school quarterback and was ran the four, four forty and, hit the most home runs in school history, ends up being the guy who makes the major leagues. That's just how it always seems to happen. Uh, but, you know, I think I think science in particular is finding that specifically with baseball, a lot of it ends up being how crisp someone's eyesight is uh, and their ability to make hand-to-eye coordination to match that athleticism. Uh, so th- to me, the answer to the actual question is there's no way of telling. All you can yeah. do is put your yeah. eggs in whatever basket and hope for the best. And, and, you know, technology is definitely going in that direction and and organizations are contracting the minor leagues because of it, but it'll never be there. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of where, based on what you had said first, Stu and Matt's questions, that's kind of where I figured you would go with that. This next question could very well have come from me, but I do have somebody else's name attached to it. So I'm going to give Jason Hill at Viva Alberto's credit for this question, unfortunately. Um, He says, I would love to hear some basic tips on how to integrate scouting and stats. Like, for example, walk rates tell me that Alex Reyes has inconsistent command. Why? What do I look for? Same applies to hitting. Well, I think we talked about that with pitching in particular and Alex Reyes. You know, just when you're watching the game, it, so if, if one of your concerns is Alex Reyes' walk rate, then watch a game and see what he's doing, what's being called a strike, where he's hitting the mitt, how he's hitting the mitt, how the catcher's moving. I think those things are important. I think with pitching in general, we don't spend enough time watching what the catcher is doing. Uh, I think that's very important. When you're talking about hitters, you know, and I tweeted about Tyler O'Neill earlier in the week. Watch how they're handling situations within an at-bat. You know, sometimes runner on ends up throwing it off a little bit. I like to watch a hitter when they don't have anyone on and see how they do. And I know that that's kind of, that's kind of creating a weird control group. Uh, I think it gives you a baseline of understanding a hitter's fundamental approach. But like, Tyler O'Neill earlier in the week, as I tweeted, we're, we were seeing him go with the two-strike pitch to right field. That was the minor league version of Tyler O'Neill. That was a Tyler O'Neill that I felt confident could produce Marcelo Zuna-like St. Louis numbers, not Marcelo Zuna-like Atlanta numbers or 2017 <laughs> Marlins numbers. Like, I felt like he was a 100 to 110 WRC plus player with power for the middle of the lineup and something like that. Like, and it was because of his approach with two strikes as dictated by what we saw at the minor leagues, whether there were hitters or runners on or not, and how he would work a count, how he might get two quick strikes trying to hunt for his pitch and then get a couple balls so that he could do something with that pitch uh, and, and maybe go to right field with it or go right center or left center. 
instead of just trying to pull it to the left alley. Uh, I would say that, you know, stats will tell you, stats give you the narrative, scouting gives you the story, if that makes sense. I like it. I like it. All right. Last question for you tonight. Uh, you claim to be just a fan and that you don't really know much more than anyone else, which for everybody listening, that's entirely false. Um, but if you were suggesting people, uh, Twitter follows or whatever, that listeners should also take into consideration as the best of the best when it comes to people who cover Cardinals prospects, besides yourself, who would you guide them towards? And what do those people do particularly well? Well, uh, we had tweeted earlier, Brian Walton was on with uh, Meet Me at Usual, Alan Medlock, and, and C70, Daniel Shoptaw. And what Brian Walton does better than anyone is he reports. And he talked about it a little bit on the podcast, but Brian Walton is a reporter, and he reports about the minor leagues. No one else does that. Not for the Cardinals, not for anyone else. Brian Walton does that. He provides that. He is a reporter, and that website, while also offering other things, uh, is it's it's like the post dispatch for minor leagues, and that's something that you if if that's your bailiwick, if minor leagues are your bailiwick, if you're an hour and twenty four minutes in listening to this, uh, you should subscribe to the Cardinal Nation, and you should consume as much Brian Walton as you can because that's that's what reporting on the minor league looks like. That's not what being a blowhard on the minor league looks like, like myself and many many others. <laughs> um, you know, we we talk about it a lot. Uh, so again, follow Brian Walton, follow, follow the, the Cardinal nation. One of the people who used to write for him that doesn't write for him anymore was Derek Shore. Derek Shore was awesome. I mean, just a, a an unbiased opinion on prospects and with a clearly defined biased opinion when he was being biased. And I love that. Uh, our good friend over at prospects live, Matt Thompson is fantastic at what he does. You know, what I like about Matt is, he's not the kind of person to get excited and he holds the Cardinals to uh, a very, very high standard. So when they don't draft somebody that he wants them to draft at the spot, he wants them to draft, he's disappointed. And, you know, granted, I think that's tough on the front or the front office and it's tough on the organization in general, but I think it's important for fans to see that because everything else coming from the organization, whether it be on the broadcast or on, the, the Twitter feed, uh, other than from, you know, people just tweeting like myself, it, it, it always seems to be roses and unicorns and puppy dogs and rainbows. And uh, I love that Matt comes at this with a kind of pessimistic view because it, when the accolades are there, they're deserved. And I, I think that's maybe more important than anything. And, you know, Matt's a scout. Matt's a legitimate scout. He, he has... Uh, a legitimate eye for all of this. And that's that's something that honestly is rare. You know, Ralph Lifshitz, uh, Eddie Amalgar, whose name I'm butchering, all of those guys at Prospects Live are doing something special. Uh, and then, you know, like the Baseball America guys are awesome. Uh, the one guy that I, I recommend to everyone is, and again, this is part of the reason why I like him, is Kyle Glazer uh, for Baseball America. It, it wasn't until, you know, maybe two or two years ago or so that I realized how much he and I are alike. He, he understands how tough it is to be a fourth outfielder or the 26 man on a roster or that guy who gets a hundred at bats. And he understands how valuable all that stuff is. 
So when he tells you that Justin Turner is going to be a fifth outfielder and you don't understand why that's a big deal, like it's a big deal. Like that's an important thing. That's an awesome thing. That's a great 23rd or 27th or 25th round draft pick, whatever he was. Uh, it doesn't get any better than that more than likely. Um, so like, I guess, you know, those are just the names that come to my mind off the top of my head. And that's not to, that's not to diminish what people like, you know, Matty Graves does. Matt's an awesome guy or, you know, any of the other people who, who write about prospects or talk about prospects, Trevor Huth, um, uh, who's on prospects live and Viva Alberto's like, they're all good and great at what they do, but those are just like the first names that come to my mind as I ramble. Awesome. Um, I'm glad you brought up a few of them. Um, and for listeners, uh, thank you, Kyle. Thank you for so much for joining us. Um, for listeners, that's kind of what made me enjoy uh, Kyle's talk about prospects. A lot of what Kyle says there, uh, whether he'll admit it or not, um, applies to him. That the, the things that he talked about with Kyle Glazer, with Matt Thompson, um, not necessarily that Kyle Reese is a pessimist, but that he he does realize that if Ivan Herrera, who he has in his top three to five in his dirty 35, probably I'm guessing here that, um, that if he comes up and he is a backup catcher that gets 200 plate appearances for 10 years in the majors, that is a ridiculously good find for the Cardinals. Um, that if Tyler O'Neill or if Harrison Bader or Lane Thomas can be a guy who sticks around in the majors for eight to 10 to 12 years, then the Cardinals hit jackpot. At wherever they got them. Um, and that's something that, that a lot of times when you're watching the NFL draft or MLB draft on MLB network or something, and you're seeing these 30th picks who are going to spend five years in the minors being compared to Bo Jackson or something that I'm sure that the people who are saying that understand what Kyle is saying, but they don't show that. Um, and that's something that really got me about Kyle and was one reason I wanted to join Birds on the Black when they started it was to work to work with people who who seem to really get that. And so um, when Kyle points these things out about other people, like go follow Brian Walton, go follow Derek Shore, go follow Kyle Glazer and all them, that um, that, 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 that that that's pretty cool that, that those guys get that and that that hopefully everybody that listens to this and goes to find them can see in them as well. Um, anyway, um, I plan on having at least two more conversations with Saruti this month. Uh, right before the season begins, I plan on having Birds on the Black scorecard keeping extraordinaire through styles. And then I'm unsure of who I'm having next week. If Kyle Reese and I can get together about Dirty 35 stuff before then, maybe uh, we can start talking about that, whether we start actually ranking or not. Um, if not, I do have a couple people uh, in line that I am wanting to talk to uh, Corey Stanzone again. And then one other surprise one if I end up getting that person on. So uh, thank you for joining me tonight. I am proud of you if you made it through an hour and a half of listening to me and Kyle. Um, but we are both out of beer and we are both ready to sleep. So everybody have a wonderful night.